everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Phil Melendez. He works with Smart Justice California. And next month, he will be receiving one of our Vanguard Justice Awards in Sacramento. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Phil, um, you know, why don't you start by telling us a bit about um, your story and how you came to be incarcerated, what, at the age of 19? Yes, 19. Uh, yeah, so my story is very similar to a lot of folks in, in from my community. You know, we grew up with a lot of adversities, a lot of trauma that we've seen and, and uh, incurred some by the hands of our families. That was the case for me. I had a lot of neglect. I had a lot of uh, issues with um, having or not having self-esteem and not feeling like I had a home or a belonging. Um, my uh, mom, unfortunately, you know, informed me of my dad. I had a stepdad and, you know, was part of that family. And it was known that I did not, that my stepdad was not my dad. And so when I got to asking questions about, you know, where's my dad and, you know, where, what's going on, you know, my mom, unfortunately, and probably due to her youthful uh, age in which she had me, it was just, uh, he didn't want you. Uh, what do you care about him? He doesn't want you. And, you know, that specific thing, it was like this snowball effect. Well, like, wow, you know, I look at Urkel show, Family Matters, the one with uh, Kirk Cameron and them, what was it, Family Ties, or I forget, but I saw a lot of those nuclear families where, uh, you know, it was a mom, dad, kids, and um, everyone had a place. And, and uh, I noticed uh, very early on that I did not fit that that mold. And for me, that that left me with, you know, a chip on my shoulder with uh, little little issues. And it showed up in, in the way that I interacted at school, uh, I, for the most part, was a was a good student. Some would say a nerd <laughs> in some cases. Some people would not. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I did good. I had good grades. And then, you know, I start noticing these, these family dynamics and learning more about my dad and uh, his negative roles that he played in the community from drug dealing to committing acts of violence. And that informed me that I needed to, well, in my, you know, youthful seven, eight, nine-year-old brain, um, it, it told me that I needed to do negative things to be like him so that I could hopefully one day earn his respect and love and, and, and just, you know, have, have my dad like I saw the rest of the community having. And so 
you know, I started out doing little things where, you know, maybe I, I, I still, I still, I remember specifically, I stole a pencil from a kid's desk and while he was sleeping and, and all the other kids behind me saw it and laughed when he woke up and couldn't find his pencil. And, 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 you know, for me, that was like a, an eye-opening experience that I can get some positive affirmation so that I can have some acceptance um, from doing something negative. And that unfortunately progressed. I got into some fights and I saw that, you know, after I won my first one, it, it, that brought a lot more respect and a lot more acceptance. And, and it just kept going and it kept going. And I craved constantly that that affirmation and I kept getting it through negative acts, whether it was even just acting up as a class clown, um, you know, those laughs that I got at the teacher's expense or at the lesson's expense, you know, those are the things that, that made me feel validated. Um, unfortunately, as I grew, it, it became more than fights. It became actual, just a, not just one-on-one -on -one fights, assaults. Um, uh, and then from there, uh, drug dealing, I saw a lot of folks in the community who had nice things and were accepted for, you know, having those things. And I said, okay, well, that's another thing I need to aspire to. And it was all kind of in keeping and in line with this idea of who my dad was and what I needed to do to still uh, get that acceptance from him. And uh, unfortunately, with that comes a, a subscription to a lifestyle that is, um, you know, definitely criminalized. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the lifestyle is born out of necessity, whether it's acceptance or just monetary um, security. But uh, fortunately, I, I dove deep into those things and uh, started selling drugs and uh, adopting the the idea that if anybody messed with me, I have to hurt them and hurt them way worse than, than I've been hurt or wronged um, to just assert my dominance. That was like a horrible, horrible, toxic, toxically masculine or toxic masculine type of view of the world that I had. And um, it, I, I bought into it wholeheartedly. And unfortunately, um, my dad was stabbed while collecting a drug debt. And I had already started to like rekindle a relationship with him and he was kind of there, but I just didn't know where we stood. And uh, around this time when we were getting to know each other, he was stabbed. And uh, unfortunately, everyone in the neighborhood was asking, you know, what are you going to do? And, and they, and everybody knew, you know, news travels fast, especially when it's something like that. And everyone was looking at me to, to do something. And I felt a deep, deep pressure to solidify my place as his son, but also just maintain that identity that I had made for myself, that mask, mask that I put on as, you know, as a gangster or someone who, you know, is, is respected in the neighborhood for negative things. And uh, yeah, that night I found out uh, where people lived in the area, or at least in the area, where it happened and who might have been involved. And unfortunately that night I took two lives um, uh, and assaulted another person and was sentenced or, and for those crimes, I was facing a death penalty. And then um, based on the convictions, which were second degree murders, uh, it left me ineligible for the death penalty or for the life without the possibility of parole sentence. I was sentenced to 30 to life plus 11 and um, based on juvenile justice legislation that was passed in 2014, I was allowed the opportunity to uh, go to the parole board uh, 15 years earlier and have special considerations for parole based on the hallmarks of youth, which you know are um, 
also based on neuroscience, which says that, you know, kids' brains aren't fully developed until the age of 25, uh, some guys, in some cases 27, and um, there's that. And then it also says that also with that underdeveloped brain, that it's harder to escape the, the circumstances of your environment, like, you know, your parents and your your living conditions and, and they're heavily influential. And then also to there's the inability to look at long-term consequences. Um, and that's what the, the bill was uh, based on was that neuroscience and the, and the fact that, well, as we know, kids are, <laughs> I don't know if you have kids, but I do. And uh, it takes a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of talking to, to get any simple point across. Um, but I'm wondering, um, Phil, uh, cause you kind of skipped ahead to how you got out, but mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what kind of your mindset was when you when you got in there and also what what kind of turned it around for you? Yeah, no. So I went in with with a horrible mindset, with that same mentality that I needed to dominate and assert myself. Uh, my dad himself, he was uh, he stabbed people in prison and he also has been stabbed in prison. So that also, that also informed my view of going in. And I went in with the life sentence, which also was something to, to contend with. You know, back then, lifers weren't coming home. Uh, I think it was either Pete Wilson or Ray Davis that, that said only only way a lifer is coming home is in a pine box. And so that was also true. Very true. Um, there, were, there were not a lot of parole rants. And if they were, they were definitely reversed. Um, just until 2009 is when things finally started changing for lifers. But at, at the point I went in, it was it was like that's it, I'm done. Uh, so I have this whole hopelessness on one end, but then also on the other end, there's the issues that I brought into prison with me that led me to commit the harm in my community, and um, and just the idea of prison. Like it's sad that you know growing up with with my friends and the gang and my dad his dad's influence is like a rite of passage and so on one hand i figured i was going to go to prison eventually one day just didn't know uh for how long for how serious of a crime um but yeah those those things heavily weighed on me as i went in um i looked for you know gang acceptance i committed violence on other incarcerated folks um because I was heavily participating in the prison politics and that whole lifestyle. It's a whole, it's a different world in there, um, especially for a youngster just starting out. Um, you looked at it, someone who needs to prove themselves. And I was a, a person who always needed to prove themselves in general. And so it was like a perfect fit in a very, very uh, negative and harmful way um, for myself and for the people that I assaulted. And uh, that persisted, sadly. Um, I, I fell into my old ways where, you know, I was drinking and, and smoking weed inside. I was, um, yeah, just stayed, stayed playing those prison politics for, for a long time. And a lot of it, too, another aspect of it, too, was also because of self-preservation. I did figure out very early on that if I did assault people, I would then um, have, be, have, have shown to prove myself and... Um, also shown not only to prove myself, but also show that I can navigate this space. And so it put me in a position where I didn't have to commit acts of violence. When things happened, I kind of elevated myself to a point where like I can assess the situation and talk to other leaders, you know, in the prison yard and, and either come to peaceful talks or agreements or uh, sanctioned violence against somebody who was deemed, who was deemed according to this, you know, work release system 
uh, if they were deemed to be in violation of the prison uh, politics and, and the rules in, in which we governed ourselves. Um, and so this persisted until, um, let's see, honestly, all the way until San Quentin. I know that's like a place of rehabilitation, or so it's looked at as, you know, as a, one of the flagships for, for rehabilitation, at least within the state. And I was not ready for it. I came to that place in, in you know, with all of my issues, my trauma, nothing worked on. Uh, 15 years of uh, institutionalization and I actually rejected the culture. Um, people asked me if I had participated in groups and programs and I was like, what does that even mean? Um, you know, we had an AA at, uh, at one prison that I was at and that was about it and nobody really took it seriously. And so this whole culture of healing was so foreign to me that, yeah, again, I, I rejected it did what I always did, which was just work out and play ball on the yard and uh, just do my time, basically. And um, I think eventually I said, you know what, one of these days, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I am going to go to the pro board. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to live that long or not. Uh, and then I didn't really have much faith in, in the in the system for, for, you know, really considering me for parole in the first place. But I said, in the off chance, I will take this group and I will take a program and I will see what it's about and see what these people are talking about. And uh, at the very first group that I went to, I heard people speaking accountably about their the harm that they've committed in the community. And, you know, that was such a, a shift in, in, it was a paradigm shift because throughout my whole incarceration, I had, you know, people supporting the negativity, um, giving me kudos, taps on the back, you know, your dad got stabbed, you, you did what you're supposed to do, you know, and it's a very, very horrible, horrible oversimplification, but, you know, that's the toxic environment that, that I was in, and so that's what reinforced me, and so to hear these people speaking about their harm, the, what they've done, getting emotional about it, owning it, I was was like, whoa, <laughs> this, is, this is a shock. I can't, I don't know how much of this I can take. I don't even really look at my stuff. I, I really, honestly, for those first 15 years, just kind of stepped everything down and focused on survival. Um, and then anytime any thoughts came into my head about, um, you know, the harm I've caused, uh, about what led me to it, I, I stepped it down because, you know, it's, it's, it's painful. And um, to see this happening, it was... It piqued my interest, um, but I can't say that it was an overnight thing that I was like, oh, like, you're, you're talking account, account, accountably? I'm, I'm in it. You know, it was like this, like this whole, whoa, let me assess the situation. Let me look deeper into this before I can like really commit. Um, and then the one thing that I, I can say that I, I was still making sure that I had a, a quote unquote paper trail of, of, you know, taking groups and programs in the event that, um, you know, I did go to the parole board and fortunately that paid off. I went to, I, I kept progressing in groups. You know, this first one was very, um, I don't want to say superficial. It was, uh, it didn't have as much depth as, and, and meat to it as much. It didn't have as much trauma informed curriculum in, in it than some of the other ones that I took. And fortunately I stayed the course and ended up in a group where a woman had told her story about losing her mom uh, to gun violence. And she had all of us in the group crying. It was the, uh, for a lot of us, it was 
the first time that we've really been faced with the realities and the pain that we've caused in the community. I I was crying. I mean, I could, I, could, I don't remember there being a dry eye in the in the room. Um, but that day was was a day that I really committed wholeheartedly to to myself to do better. And I, I looked at her and you know I apologized to her. I, I've seen her. Uh, well, I haven't seen her, but I connected with her on online social media and. And I told her, I said, hey, you know what? You really changed my life. Help me bring me home, but also really change the trajectory of my of my healing, that whole process. And um, yeah, from then on, I was committed. I take I, I took even more groups that dealt with the victim's impacts. And those things, again, super painful, super painful to talk about, you know, the trauma that, that led me to internalize my unworthiness and unlovable status all those things were, were difficult because I mean there's more than just you know my dad not wanting me at first there was there was there's a lot more there and I impacted all in these groups and sadly you know it, it, it took you know almost 20 years for me to like really get to my issues I wish it could have been sooner um probably would have had a, a better and less violent uh time in prison uh, but yeah when you went in mm-hmm. how old were you when you got out oh i was 37 or 38 so i did like 20 years so yeah yeah 38 39 um <clears throat> and um yeah but based on everything that i unpacked all the trauma that i unpacked uh all the the deep looks into the harm that i've caused and those looks were deep it's not just like saying, hey, I did this and it hurt somebody. It's also like putting myself in their shoes. It's it's me writing letters to 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 the people who are not even alive anymore, but just to say something to 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 put a put a feeling from me to them, you know, even if they can't hear it, but just for me to really dig deep into that, it took me looking into uh people that I've lost and, and connecting that, that pain to to theirs. Um and then looking at things like the ripple effects, the impacts on um, the whole community, you know, like the not just the direct families, but the first responders, the judge, the the jury, uh, the people in my neighborhood who, uh, you know, the negative impact and the negative uh, role models that I became. You know, I looked into all of those things and had just deep, sincere remorse about it. And I was able to to take all of that to the parole board and, and be found suitable at my initial hearing. And that was in 2017 and was released in uh, yeah, September, actually. Yeah, it'll be six years, um, the 28th of this month. Wow. So what's it like to be out? I mean, you've been in since basically you're a kid. Now, now you're approaching 40. You finally get out um what was that like and it seems like you had some resources to fall back on them i did i did i i always state that i benefited heavily from from the san quentin privilege um which you know just it, it, the, the san quentin privilege is something that is sadly not felt in in, in very rural and remote prisons um fortunately san quentin is situated in the bay area there's a lot of, of folks who um run these programs that are that become you know a, a safety network when you come home and you know you form really real good bonds with people and 
they're helpful when you come home. And for me to come home, you know, from being a teenager to, you know, like you said, almost 40, it's, 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 it's like being in a time capsule, I will say, um, you know, prison does preserve you in its own way, you know, sometimes physically, but definitely mental, mentally, you know, I did feel somewhat like my growth was stunted. Um, and, it, you know, it could just be from having the same day over and over, living out the same day or same week for 20 years and then you come home and, and everyone has phones and you know they don't even look up anymore and people are you know, they're driving on while well, they're looking at their phones and that that's that really used to scare me um but also too just looking at this whole world and trying to navigate it in its entirety because you don't just come home um wanting to 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 start a whole you know your life over you also come home oh for me i came home with a, a deep desire to to make amends and, and where uh, those amends were not possible than to make at least a living amends, you know, because of the harm that I've caused. And so I have to, ta- I don't, I'm not just building their life. I'm, I'm tackling the whole issues of, of all the ails of the world, at least trying to, uh, you know, by preaching emotional intelligence and, and teaching folks everything that I've learned, you know, in the hopes to stop people from following in my footsteps. So that's like this whole, burden that, that I placed on myself, but it's something that was very, also very near and dear to me. So it, it it felt, I don't know, what was the guy with the with the with the ball on his shoulder? Atlas, <laughs> you know, if, like I'm I'm trying to take take on all the sadness of the world and trying to do what I can to teach folks what I've learned and, and because, you know, on one hand it is painful to work through all the trauma, but on the other hand, when you come out of that and you are you really know what makes you tick. You really know what your triggers are and you know why they're triggers in the first place. It makes it really, really uh, easy to find happiness. And also too, just based on the 20 years I was gone, I had a lot of gratitude. So um, there's a lot of happiness there, but at the same time, there's uh, a deep desire and, and the whole weight of the world that I took on just based on, on my remorse and what I wanted to do. It's, it was this this duality of, of extreme happiness and extreme like trepidation uh, on how to navigate it, not wanting to mess anything up because I want I don't know I just want so much better for the world and yeah it puts a, it put a lot of burden put a heavy burden and then to go from a very strict and regimented lifestyle just to have like the world expand before you it's like where do I start and so it's very daunting but um, I, I I took it on wholeheartedly but even to this day um you know i i still get sad about us not making as much progress i want to see a lot more uh, in terms of emotional intelligence for the whole world basically i want everyone to i want to say go to prison and then take all these programs i want everyone to have that same learning uh that's that trauma-informed care that that i i have to to stop everything that's ailing the world because it's really sad. Like I don't, I'm very empathic and I hate to see people argue. I get, I, I, I connect with it and, and if I get scared. I get um, angry. I get sad really, really easy right along with people. And so just to see like all the divides in society these days, I feel like it all could just be quelled or quashed with, with just an emotional intelligence and a little bit of, of compassion for for 
everyone in the world, but um, yeah, it's still sad to see that it's we're not there yet and getting worse. And really, this is half your story because you know, then you get out and you've done a lot since you've been out. Um, so how'd you hook up with some of the groups that you've worked for and tell us a little bit about your work with Smart Justice? Yeah, so the first organization I worked for, I gave a speech, uh, a fundraiser on the very first day that I came home. And from that that speech, uh, there was a family that was inspired to to give to a, a and create a fellowship for me and on, on uh, providing reentry services for folks coming home. And so basically I was just... Um, helping people navigate reentry much like I was helped um, as I had came home, whether it's, you know, learning how to use public transportation, debit cards, pump gas. That was also like, I remember when I first came home, my, my friend was driving me around. He's like, I'm gonna get some gas. I was like, can I watch? He was like, what? <laughs> I guess. And I was like, cool. And then he, you know, I was like, yeah, he, he put the debit card in, pick the thing. He said, make sure you don't ask for a receipt because you don't want to have people having your, I was like, okay. Um, you know, there's a whole lot that I had to get some help with and still to this day, <laughs> need some help with some things, but uh, that was my first job and it was great and very fulfilling. Uh, and then after that, I was uh, asked by some friends who um, we used to work together at San Quentin to put on events and, and bring the community inside and uh, they said, we're starting a new org. We're going to be doing the same thing we were doing. I was like, let's do that. That's fine. My, my fellowship was ending. It's perfect timing. Uh, and then unfortunately, during the pandemic, that, that second organization, um, we lost funding. And then uh, sure enough, right after that, Smart Justice said, hey, we're going to uh, do this Get Proximate program. We're going to bring folks inside the prisons. I was like, I can definitely do that. And um you know, that work has been very fulfilling along the way, though, um, like while inside some of the events that I put together were to actually pass legislation that brought me home. Uh, we had an event inside San Quentin uh, around Senate Bill 261, which is the bill that uh, that I had mentioned earlier, the juvenile justice legislation. And from there, I, I got a hankering for for like advocacy. And um, as soon as I came home, even during my fellowship, uh, my friend was asking me, do you want to help, you know, push SB 1437, which, you know, amended the felony murder rule and got, rich, got rid of the nat natural and probable consequences doctrine. Um, and I was like really, really enthused for that. I, I mean, I knew it was bringing home good friends, but also too, it's just, um, it's a, it was a continuance of what I had, feel like I had started inside. And so now with Smart Justice, I am putting on the prison visits, same as I used to inside. I'm taking in legislators. We brought in like like over 50% of the of the state legislature by now. We brought in district attorneys, uh, cultural influencers, uh, all inside to, to get proximate with the issues of incarceration and to meet old friends of mine and people who are very much like me and, and of a like mind as far as their growth and healing process. And so that's been very fulfilling. And then at Smart Justice too, I've also recently been uh, do, doing that, but also tackling uh, more legislation and helping out in coalition work there. So that's been fun to you know start dropping into uh, district offices, meeting up with members or staffers, telling my story and telling them why these bills make sense and why we can you know 
let these folks out safely with no impact to public safety or actually actually with as assets to public safety as, as a lot of us are when we come home um and so it's been very very fulfilling to to do all of that work since i've been home you know bringing folks inside but also bringing folks home as well so that little inside and out Tell us a little bit about these prison visits. I know somebody who was on the inside of the one you guys did in the spring, I guess, with, at Donovan. Oh, yeah. No, that one was was, was big. That was our, our policymaker retreat uh, where we brought in, I think it was around 50 members of the legislature. I think it was about 80 people total that we brought in. And, um, yeah, so basically I go in, I tell, tell the folks inside, hey, this is what we're doing. Actually, I, I introduced myself. I say, hey, you know, I was from a lifer. I did all this X, Y, and Z when I was inside, from the growth and healing to the events linking, linking the community members to us. And this is more of more of the same. And, you know, I give them the opportunity, like, you totally opt out. I know this is, it's, it's pretty high stakes. Um, you want to make sure you, you put the best foot forward. And, and if you feel like you're not ready, then totally understands. Um, we can always find people who are willing to talk about their growth and healing inside because there's so many of us. I always like to say, I'm, I'm, I don't know who who made this term up, but I love the term, which was I am not an exception. I'm the reflection of of, of who's inside, and so um, it's been great um, getting getting folks inside to see those same people that are, like I said, of the same mind as me, or even of a better mind with their growth and healing. Um, yeah, that particular visit was was ridiculous it was a, a mega lift i mean shout out to to our whole team it wasn't for the most part i you know i run all these visits by myself but this one it was all hands on deck our team was super involved in, in making sure that all the details my team was very very involved in, in this one specifically and, and made it the success that it was but um yeah i went in told the folks we're having this they were up for it um they even have suggest they had suggestions of you know here's some topics some content here's some real ideas I was like let's let's bring it all to the table and because you know um, I they always say that people closest to the problem are the ones with the best solutions and that's what our our proximity work is based on I think it's the Brian Stevenson quote and always happy to link those folks together because there's there's definitely stories that need to be told there's understanding that needs to be had. Uh, for, for the legislators is putting a face to the legislation that crosses their desks. For the folks inside, it's empowering. We also have survivors come and, you know, tell their stories. And much like I was impacted by that, that lady that I mentioned, they are also impacted. And so it goes, it, it goes a long way for growth and healing for the folks inside, but it's also empowering and gives them their voice back. And I mean, that's something that I had mentioned with uh, one of the volunteers at San Quentin, after I was found suitable for parole, I remember telling her like, you know, thank you so much for helping me. She actually pushed me to participate in my first event. And uh, I just told her, thank you for giving me my voice back and for making me feel like heard and seen and valued. You know, it's all of the things that I was missing as a child. And um, I'm always happy to give that back to the folks inside. So as we wrap up, what would you say you're the biggest thing that stands out in the six years that you've been out? The biggest thing that stands out as far as my work? Yeah. Ooh. I would say that event. That event was huge. We had, because it wasn't just legislators. 
you know, there were labor leaders, there were so many people, so many influential people at that event that, you know, it was impossible not to come away inspired and it's, it was impossible not to come away with uh, a desire to do better by incarcerated folks. You know, it really humanized them for those that hadn't really thought of them in that way. It, 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 it addressed the elephant in the room, which, you know, is, you know, extreme violence in the communities. It, it did a lot. And I think that was one of the things that it pushed the needle really, really far, you know, when it comes to legislation, uh, working on those things too, that it, that's also been very um, fulfilling for me to, to go up to the Capitol and, and sit in, the, in a public safety hearing with committee members and saying, hey, here's a good bill, pass it, and, you know, urge them to vote I and I, it's, it, it's surreal sometimes those two things working on bills working on legislation and and that specific visit all of them really but but that one just for the sheer number of people that we brought in it was it was huge and it was a a major accomplishment not just for me but for our team and also also i think for criminal justice reform in general (laughs) all right well thanks for joining us i look forward to seeing you a little over a month from now when we uh, honor you for all the great work that you've done and also for turning your life around, which is probably the most amazing accomplishment uh, uh, of it all. We've been talking with Phil Melendez from Smart Justice California. I'm David Greenwald. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.